0: This morning, Luke chapter 7, while the young people are dismissed to their classes in the back, then get taught there on their level. It's a blessing Luke chapter (coughs) 7. Total consumer debt in the United States right now is about 4.1 trillion dollars. Student loans right now total 1.7 trillion dollars. If you just single out automotive loans, those total 1.2 trillion dollars. Now, sometimes we hear things like billion and trillion and we can't really wrap our minds around it. Let me make it real easy for us to understand just how much this is. One, uh, one million seconds, that's 12 days. You can understand that length, right? A million seconds is 12 days. One billion seconds is 30 years. One trillion seconds is 30,000 years. Gives you an idea of just how big a trillion is. The average U.S. household today owes $148,298 in debt. 7000 of that is for credit card debt, and a little over $28,000 is for automotive loans. So that's a, that's a problem, I think we can understand that nationally speaking. Proverbs 22, seven, the Bible says, The rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. But a greater problem, much greater problem than financial debt, is spiritual debt. And today I want to talk to you about that. Because each and every one of us has to, at some point in our life, deal with our spiritual debt. Every one of us has a debt that we cannot pay. I want to look at a story today in the New Testament that deals with this subject. We're in Luke chapter 7, and I want to start reading in verse number 36. Verse 36, And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meat. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, When she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors, the one owed five hundred pence and the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, "I suppose that he to whom he forgave most." And he said unto him, "Thou hast rightly judged, Father. I pray you'd help us today as we look at this subject of spiritual death. Father, I know each and every one of us, uh, if if we are even if we are here today and born again, saved children of God, we know somebody, we have loved ones, friends who are not saved, and I pray that you would help us to gain a burden for them. Not critical hearts, not critical spirits, but a burden, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This story is, is, is a study in contrasts. You have the sinful woman on one hand, and you have the scornful Pharisee on the other hand. The place that this takes, uh, the, the, where they're at when this takes place, is Simon's house in Capernaum. Now, Simon was a common name in the New Testament. We know of nine different Simons, two of them uh, being apostles. But this Simon was a Pharisee. And there were no group of people more hostile to the Lord Jesus Christ than the Pharisees. Luke mentions them 28 times in his gospel. And every time they're antagonistic, they're attacking him, they're argumentative, and they're just nasty people when it comes to Jesus. No people were more proud and arrogant than the Pharisees. Now, the fact that this woman dared to enter the house of a Pharisee is amazing in and of itself. Now, it's interesting, though, the most of problems, almost all the problems Jesus had in his ministry were from religious sources, if you've ever noticed. Even when he had problems with the Romans or the government, it was always incited by religious leaders or, or they were behind the whole thing. And even today, the devil will use religion to oppose the gospel more than any other source. The main issue in your life, in anybody's life, the main issue is what will you do with Jesus Christ? That's the most important question. Now, religions unwittingly prove our point when one of the first things they do is remove the deity of Jesus Christ. Let me give you just a few. (coughs) Judaism rejects Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah. Islam. Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet, but they deny that he is God. Hindus believe Jesus was a holy man, a wise teacher, and a god, little g. Buddhists believe that Jesus was an enlightened man and a wise teacher. New Age thinkers think that Jesus was a wise, moral teacher. Mormons believe that Jesus was a god, but no differently than you and I can be a god as well. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses claim that Jesus is a created being, and we could go on down the line, Because, friend, the most important question that you'll ever answer is this question, who is Jesus Christ to you? And religions get it wrong by definition. They're a religion, not believers in Jesus Christ. So I want to lay out the setting of this parable just to understand its full uh, impact here when Jesus is talking to Simon. Uh, What prompted Jesus to give this story? So let's look at the setting. It all started when Jesus was invited over to a Pharisee's house for a meal. Not a normal thing to happen. In fact, it only happened twice in Scripture that we know of here and in Luke chapter 11 where a Pharisee invited Jesus to his house. They weren't in the habit of inviting Jesus over to dinner. Neither invitation these two that are mentioned in the Bible, neither one was given as an honor to Jesus. Both these invitations were given so that they could trap Jesus and get him or humiliate him really when it came down to it. How would you like to be invited over to somebody's house for a meal for the simple reason of trying to humiliate you and trap you into saying something you shouldn't? The interesting thing is Jesus still went. The same love that brought him down from the high heavens to this hostile world took him to Simon's house, an unfriendly host. Well, while they were there, look at verse 37. You'll see, behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner. When she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisees' house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. Again, we need to understand the culture of the day. Meal times in the Bible are different than what we are used to today uh, in their culture. In those days, the dinner parties would take place uh, like in an open courtyard. There would be a low table. They didn't sit in chairs the way we did, uh, that we do today. They would kind of recline on couches up against this low table. Uh, I've tried to recreate this and it seems terribly uncomfortable to me. I prefer the chairs myself, but this is how they did things in that day. They were public events. Not that people were invited to the dinner, but people could come by and observe what was going on. Uh, They were not really invited guests, but they also weren't intruders if they came and just observed what was going on in these dinners. Uh, They were self-invited observers. As we look on this scene today, We see a low table in the courtyard there. It's kind of U-shaped with couches arranged uh, where they are leaning up against the table with legs uh, going out away from the table. And a woman enters the room. She walks around the table and to the sofa where Jesus is reclining. The Bible calls her a woman in the city, which was a sinner. Now, sinner synonymous here its uh, uh, with the with the way that she's described uh, the, the context, she's a harlot. So she, this woman was a prostitute. Uh, this is what she was before she met Christ. And she came to the house of a Pharisee. Now ordinarily, Simon and this woman would never meet. He certainly would never uh, be, have anything to do with the likes of her and she would want nothing to do with him. Yet here they are thrown together toward a common purpose Both of them want to spend time with Jesus, although totally different reasons in their motive. find that interesting. A woman in her line of work is a good judge of men. She sees them as they are. She knew Jesus was not like those other men. She heard in his words a promise of a way out of her ugly, empty life. And can I tell you, friend, when you live in the depths of sin, it will be an empty Life, it always is. Sin destroys, it robs you of everything you hold dear. Center of attention now becomes this woman of the street. She's out of place. You have a Pharisee's home, all bunch of hoity-toity people around, and here comes this woman of the street. She begins to cry uncontrollably. As she cries, her tears begin to fall on Jesus' feet, and she dries His feet with her hair. Then she kisses his feet as well. Finally, she anoints his feet with the perfume. She did four things for Jesus that this Pharisee had neglected to do. Number one, she washed his feet. The Bible says she began to wash his feet with tears. When this woman came to Christ, her tears are gushing from her eyes because of the sorrow for her sins. These tears cascaded on the bare feet of our Savior and with those tears she washed Jesus' feet. Something the Pharisee ought to have done, we'll see in a minute, but he did not do. Washing a guest's feet was customary courtesy. In that day, they walked everywhere they went. Uh, They wore sandals. It was dry. It was dusty. And their feet would get dusty. And so it was a common thing uh, for a host to offer to have a servant or a place there for them to wash their feet before they would enter his home. But this proud Pharisee would not wash Jesus' feet. He wouldn't even have a, uh, one of his servants do it. It was insulting neglect on his part. This woman, however, washed Jesus' feet with choice water for tears. It was a humbling thing, but it honored Jesus. Did he not humble himself to provide for our salvation? Surely we can humble ourselves to provide him service. She wiped his feet. The Bible says she did wipe them with the hairs of her head. By using her hair to wipe his feet, she is sacrificing her glory for his glory. The Bible says, if you remember in First Corinthians eleven fifteen, that a woman's hair is her glory. Oh, we see that. We have no difficulty understanding that today. Uh, a woman values her hair. A woman will put much effort and expense in finding the right stylist and the right person to take care and do her hair just the way she likes it. And then her husband needs to notice that when she gets it done. Amen? Amen. All right. Just making sure we understand. This woman sacrificed her beauty by using her hair to wipe his feet. What a sacrifice this would. It would get messy. It would get greasy. It would get dirty and dusty, her hair. And yet she sacrificed that for the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, what should we not be willing also to sacrifice for our Savior? Give up our personal glory honor and esteem in the world. We need to be humble to serve. She washed his uh, feet. She wiped his feet. She also kissed his feet. The Bible says here she kissed his feet after washing and wiping them. This is one of only two instances in the Bible where somebody kisses Jesus. You know the other one, don't you? In the night of his arrest, Judas came up and kissed Jesus. It was a kiss of betrayal, but this here was not a kiss of betrayal. This was one of, of great... Uh, Honor to Jesus and love uh, this abundant love springing from ascendant sense of abundant forgiveness. Love for Christ motivated this woman's actions. By the way, love will motivate us to do great things as well. Paul talks about this in First Corinthians, uh, our Second Corinthians, chapter five, verse fourteen. For the love of Christ constraineth us. She also anointed his feet with ointment. There she the Bible says. Here is also a great sacrifice. If we're going to serve well, sometimes we have to sacrifice much. This woman sacrificed a great deal in anointing Christ's feet. The Bible calls it an alabaster box of ointment. It was not cheap stuff. I won't go into that now, but this was a valuable thing she was given. And this is her way of saying, listen, you are worthy of anything I can give you. You know, in the Old Testament, David when it came time to worship the Lord, he also would not sacrifice to the Lord without personal sacrifice. The Bible says in 2 Samuel 24, 24, he says this, Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which does cost me nothing. Understanding the idea of sacrifice. We don't, look to, we don't need to look any further than our nation's history to find sacrifice. Fifty-six men signed the Declaration of Independence. Five were captured by the British, tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons to the Revolutionary Army. Another had two sons captured. Nine fought and died from wounds or hardships of war. Carter Braxton of Virginia was a wealthy trader. He saw all of his ships sunk by the British Navy. He sold his home and his properties to pay his debt, and he died in poverty. At Yorktown, the British General Cornwallis took over Thomas Nelson's home, another signer, of the Declaration of Independence, and he made his home his own headquarters. Nelson told George Washington to open fire on his own home, and the home was destroyed, and Nelson died bankrupt. John Hart, another signer, was driven from his wife's bedside as she lay dying. Their 13 children fled for their lives. Over a year, he lived in caves and woods and forests, returning only to find his wife dead and his children gone. A few weeks later, he himself died from exhaustion. These men believed in a cause strong enough to offer some sacrifice. What is your sacrifice? What is our sacrifice for the Lord today? Can I tell you that ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing either. We ought to be willing and able to sacrifice anything for the Lord Jesus Christ. We want the benefits of sacrificing, but we do not want to do any sacrificing. But if you're going to do much for God, it'll take a sacrifice. Remember that Jesus Christ sacrificed His all for us, did He not? Uh, to provide our salvation. We ought to be willing to sacrifice some ointment. We ought to be willing to sacrifice some time or some money for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Simon's watching all this. He'd never seen it in life. He's probably in shock. In verse 39, it says, He spake within himself, saying, If this man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she's a sinner. He is deeply offended by what this woman has done. A fallen woman caressing Jesus' feet. He would never let a woman like that touch him. The whole thing to him was disgusting and revolting. But the reaction of the Pharisee revealed a wicked heart within him. And in several ways we see this. He was irreverent. He says the one thing, he says here, this man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner a woman this is. The Pharisee calls... Jesus simply, this man. He denies his deity, who he is. Uh, He does not accept who Jesus Christ is and uh, just calls him this man. He's irreverent. He's also ignorant. He says, what manner of woman this is. The Pharisee is ignorant of the change in the woman's heart and life because of Christ. Yes, she had been a great sinner. But that can change, praise God. Simon's problem was that he thought He was so much better than that woman he saw in front of him. Simon is thinking she's a sinner. Jesus Christ is thinking, no, she was a sinner. Hey, Simon, the problem he had was he could not see her. He only saw her as she was, not as she is today. She had been changed by the power of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. God changed the tenses in her life. She was a sinner is so no longer. Hallelujah. He can do the same for you today, friend, if you haven't accepted Christ as Savior. Praise God for a Savior who sees me not as I was, but what I can be. He was also inconsistent. The Pharisee had not provided any of the common courtesies for Jesus, but now he criticizes her when she does the same thing. In fact, Jesus brings this up. This is typical of a hypocrite. A hypocrite will criticize other people in the same area that he is at great fault. We see that here. So with all this going on, Jesus tells a story. He does this. Parables. And he drives home great points sometimes with his parables. Simon thought that Christ had been a prophet to know one about this woman. Now notice here, I think this is interesting. Verse number 39. I just want you to see what's happening. It says, He spake within Himself, saying. You know what that is, right? You're not saying it out loud. You're saying it to yourself. You're thinking it. Or just uh, even wording it in your own mind, but He did not speak this out loud. But look what it says, verse 40. And Jesus answering Him. Answering what? He hadn't said anything. Can I tell you a secret, ladies and gentlemen? Jesus knows your thoughts. He knows what you think. He not only knows, here's what you say, uh, He knows all your thoughts. He doesn't only know about your mouth and your matter, manners, but He knows about your meditations. Our heart and mind is an open book to the omniscience of Christ. We can hide nothing from God. The Bible says in Psalm 139, too, Thou knowest my, my downsitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thoughts from afar off. Obviously, Jesus is not pleased with Simon's attitude. And he's not a compromiser. I like the fact that Jesus told the truth no matter who was listening. It doesn't matter that Simon's a man of position and of power and he could really do things for Jesus if he'd get him on his team. Jesus tells him as it is. Always did. And I appreciate that so much about our Savior. I think today, in our day and age, we could use a few more pulpits that would preach the truth as it is. Isn't that true? But he... Uh, Knew what he was thinking, so I told him a story. Now this parable that he tells is told with the specific purpose of representing Simon and the woman. Keep that in mind as we read it. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. One owned 500 pence and the other 50. Sin here, uh, well let's see just a couple of facts about both these people. Both were in debt. Both of them were in debt. Sin is pictured as debt here. Uh, Both were sinners. This woman would be, and rightly so, considered a vile sinner. Make no mistake, being a harlot is evil. That's not good. Amen? That's a sin. The Pharisee would be seen by all around as being a very holy and righteous and upright man. But in fact, he was a wicked sinner too, because every single one of us are wicked sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none that seeketh after righteousness. There is none that doeth good. So, they were both in debt. Now, many people are like this Pharisee. I would say, almost go as far as they. most people in our society today are like the Pharisee, that because everybody around them thinks that they are a good person, they themselves think that they are a good person, good enough for heaven. They certainly wouldn't call themselves wicked or in debt as far as sin goes. Look at yourself in the mirror of God's Word. That's how you get that information. Both were in debt. Number two, both could not pay. One owed a year and a half's wages. Now, we there's always a whole bunch of, of talk about what this means in modern money, but we'll just use two numbers because it was ten times the amount. So one owed $50,000 and one owed $5,000 in our money today. It doesn't matter how big the debt was. Neither one of them could pay you understand that, right? If you owe 5000 or 50000 debt is debt if you can't pay either one. They're both bad if you can't pay them. Neither one could pay their debt. So it really didn't matter that one owed more and one owed less. They couldn't pay it. It doesn't matter how big or how little of a sinner you are, friend. Your sin is too much for you to pay for. Psalm 49, verse 6. The Bible says, They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother or give God a ransom for him. All the efforts of the flesh to save oneself is a waste, is vain. Titus 3, verse 5, not by works of righteousness we have done, but according to his mercy has saved us. So, both are in debt. Both cannot pay. Both were forgiven. Hallelujah. The Bible says, he frankly forgave them both. They were freely forgiven of their entire debt. Now, let me tell you here, the the forgiveness of the debt was entirely on part of the creditor, not the one that owed the debt. The debtor did not deserve it because the debtor owed the money. The creditor forgave, meant that the debtor would not be punished. Now, debtors faced a lot of problems that day. They could go to prison. They could be put in the stocks. Your children, according to Second Kings chapter 4, your children could be taken by the creditor for slaves until the debt was paid off. Forgiveness exempted them from all this. This is a perfect picture of salvation. We are sinners without any means of redeeming ourselves. We cannot pay for our sin debt, whether it is large or small, we cannot pay for it. We'll face great punishment if our sins are not forgiven, but those who come to Christ, as this woman did, will be freely forgiven of all their sins. Amen. We talked the other day, uh, last week, when we had the men's prayer breakfast, about the fact there is no East Pole. Hallelujah. Uh, There's a North Pole. There's a South Pole. But there's no East Pole. And when God says, I'll remove your sins, He says, I'll remove it as far as the East is from the West. And praise God, there's no place where we can find them again. Now, Jesus asked Simon the million-dollar question. Which of them will love him most? Now, Simon, probably by now, this isn't his first rodeo with Jesus. Uh, they, they've tried before and always failed. So he probably smells a trap. He's a little cautious in his answer. And he says, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said, thou hast rightly judged. Now, you don't have to be a theological wizard to kind of see the scorn here in, in, in Simon's answer, I suppose we uh, have to see it From Simon's eyes, he would see the prostitute as like the debtor that owed $50,000. Her debt to God was enormous because in Simon's eyes, she was an enormous sinner. Compared to her, Simon's debt seems like a pittance. But that's not the point, is it, friend? It does not matter how much you owe if you can't pay the debt. And neither can pay the debt, whether it was little or much. None of us, pay what we owe. And here's the gospel message. God is willing to forgive all debtors equally. Those who owe a lot and those who owe a little. Praise God. Well, let's look at the principle in the story here. It's about love and its relationship to forgiveness. Simply stated here, the greater the forgiveness, the greater the love. Now, Simon's at the center stage here. He's probably beginning to sweat a little bit because what Jesus means here is painfully clear. Simon, there's fundamentally no difference between you and this woman. You're both debtors. You both owe a debt. You can't pay. Christ uh, then condemned Simon very severely, but he didn't do it without proof. He told him, look, you did nothing for me that this woman did. He says, uh, you didn't wash my feet. You didn't uh, do all the things that she has done. And he showed how they contrasted her actions, contrasted to Simon's actions. You didn't even bother to show me the minimal courtesy, he said. She lavished her love on you. Don't forget this happened in front of people. We see in verse 49 that it refers to the they. People were seeing this. Simon invited Christ to his house basically to shame him. And now he's shamed in front of all. Listen, sin will always come back to haunt you. And often in the same manner that you sin, you sow the seed, you'll reap the harvest. Public condemnation is very hard on a Pharisee because Pharisees saw themselves as the noblest of society. Now, looking at this story, and sometimes we see this in, uh, we we talked about isolated principles last week a little bit, but sometimes you see one thing and you can get a misinterpretation out of it. Let me make really clear, parables display doctrine, parables don't determine doctrine, and so we don't ever want to look at a parable and pull doctrine from it, but there's a, There's a possibility here of misinterpreting this in several different ways. I just want to point them out. Uh, First of all, the fullness of love. Then is the fullness of love determined by the amount of sin or the awareness of sin. Simon said the one that's forgiven the most would love the most. Jesus said he's correct. Does this then mean that unless you've been a great sinner, you'll not love Christ as much? Does this mean that the more wicked you were, the more... You'll love Jesus when you're saved. If it does mean that, does that mean we ought to sin a whole bunch so we can love him more one day? I think we all know the answer to that one. Obviously, this this parable cannot mean that we must sin more to love more. In fact, Paul in Romans chapter 3, uh, he was slandered by others who said that he was saying this very thing. Let us do evil that good may come. He said no, a thousand times no to that. We don't do evil so good may come. What is the meaning of it then? I believe that he to whom little is forgiven is not necessarily one who has sinned little. Rather, it's one who lacks the conviction to see how much of a sinner they are. He loves little because he has little sense of what God has done for him. Can I tell you, friend, God has saved, if God saved you, he has he has done mightily for you. Now I was I was seven years old. I, I'm sorry. I was ten years old when I got saved, and I hadn't robbed any banks. I hadn't uh, I hadn't shot anyone. I hadn't done any horrible sins. I hadn't dealt any drugs. All right. I was a pretty innocent kid. Does that mean that I love God less because I wasn't saved from horrible, awful crimes like Brother Corey was? You know? Uh, does that mean? I'm just kidding guys are looking like shocked uh, but you know what i'm saying you, you 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 should you love no god saved me i was a sinner i was a wicked sinner i had a debt i could not pay no matter what i did i could not pay my debt doesn't matter if i owed five thousand fifty thousand or five million if i can't pay it i can't pay it and i couldn't pay it saved me say save okay he did the same for you oh listen Simon is an example of one who loved little because he had little sense of his sin, not because he had little sin. So I believe it's therefore not the amount of sin in our life, but the awareness of our sin that makes us love the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiving us. Simon thought he was a good person. And boy, we do too. We're full of ourselves. We just are. We're a selfish, self-centered people. If you don't believe me, log on to Facebook. Just scroll a little bit. You'll see people are full of themselves. Americans, they say, are 27th in education, but highest in self-esteem. You know what that means? It means we're dumb as a bunch of a box of rocks, but we are happy as po- uh, pigs in slop, while in the middle of it. Amen. We tend to think. We tend to think God's lucky to have me. We tend to think that. Uh, you know, Lord, he must be so thankful that I became a Christian because now he has me on his team, like Simon. We're not careful, all of ourselves. Then, uh, secondly, the fact of love. The second issue here is love—the reason or the result of forgiveness. If you read verse forty-seven casually, you see there. Uh, it seems to say that it is the reason of forgiveness. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Now. The understanding of this verse is seen in how we view the word for. Here in the context of Scripture, for means therefore, not because. So it says she's forgiven, therefore she loved much. That's what that word for means in this situation here. Christ is not contradicting himself. In fact, later he says, thy faith hath saved thee, not thy love hath saved thee. Makes that clear. Love then is the result of forgiveness, not the reason for forgiveness. We realize what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. We love Him for it. Amen. Now Jesus speaks to the woman for the first time, verse forty-four. Oh, actually, let's go down to uh, verse fifty. Then He said to the woman, "Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. Thy sins are forgiven." He said, verse 47, uh, this takes care of her past. Thy faith hath saved you. That takes care of her present. Go in peace. That takes care of her future. But that's all. He did not say, Now don't you go saw your body anymore. He didn't have to. She'd been set free from that. She'd been forgiven for that. Go in peace. She'd been forgiven and changed and redeemed. You see, if, if as we conclude this in closing... Simon's problem was not that he couldn't see the woman. Simon's problem was not that he couldn't see Jesus. Simon's problem was that he could not see himself. That's most people's problem today. Simon says, I owe him nothing. So he gave him nothing. The woman said, I owe him everything. And so she gave him everything. Here's the truth from this story. Your love for the Lord is directly related to your awareness of how greatly you have sinned and how much he's forgiven you. Oh, friend, don't fall into the trap of thinking, well, I've been so good my whole life. I've got, you know, I don't have that much to be forgiven of. I remember one time hearing somebody interviewed and they asked the question, have you ever asked the Lord for forgiveness? And he said, I will if I ever need to. Wow, a Very good attitude to have, isn't it? We all need it. In truth, we're all like that woman. We're so guilty. We have a debt that we owe and that we cannot pay. And yet, there's a little bit of Simon in each and every one of us as well. Secretly, we think we're better than we really are. That's just natural, isn't it? We don't realize how wicked we are, and we think we're better than we really are. So we hold back. We play it safe. We never totally commit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, everyone in this room, listen very carefully now, everyone in this room, under the sound of my voice, is in one of two conditions. Either God has forgiven you of a debt you could not pay, if that's so, you love him for it, grateful for it, or you're in here and you have not recognized that you even have a debt. But friend, you do. Every single one of us have a sin debt. I want to ask you today, if you're here today and you've never dealt with that in your life, you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, what will you do with the debt today that you can't pay? Never be able to pay it yourself. But forgiveness awaits you. I think it's a great lesson in here, in this story as well, when we look at Simon, never to get in the position that Simon was in, where he's looking down his nose at somebody who's far worse he feels than he is. Let us never Have a a holier-than-thou attitude, but let us have compassion on those who need it. Jesus looked at the woman and he loved her. Simon looked at the woman and he loathed her. Let's have the right attitude as we look at sinners who so desperately need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every head bowed today.